Hey, everybody, how you doing today? I think some folks in the back still sleep. How you doing today? In case you didn't know, in case they didn't tell you on the way in, today is Resurrection Sunday. Amen? And this is, as we say from time to time, the Super Bowl of the church world because this is a really, really big day. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Special welcome to those of you who are also joining us online. It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Well, I'll say it's uh, for as long as I can remember, Resurrection Sunday uh, has been an important day, a meaningful day for me. I'm a preacher's kid. My earliest memories I have are memories in the church. And I remember when my mother, my father didn't go to church quite yet, my mother would take us two blocks down the street to the old Ship of Zion Missionary Baptist Church, and Sister Doreen would always bring me, not always my sisters, but she always brought me an Easter basket. And so as a kid, I associated Resurrection Sunday with this really big, elaborate Easter basket that Sister Doreen would bring me. But even as a kid, Easter was special. And of course, in my late teens, in my early 20s, as I get to know Jesus for myself, I begin to understand the significance, the, first, the, more, the significance of this day. And especially as a pastor, as we start pastoring over a decade ago, I realized and continue to realize that there is a specific supernatural weight to a day like today. There's something about Resurrection Sunday that awakens our hearts to life and reminds us why we gather. Reminds us why we press into faith and press into Jesus and invite others into faith. Something about today, the weight and gravity of today is super special. Let me also say that it is not lost on me as I stand here today in 2021 that we didn't get to do this last year. The first time in my life I was not in the physical church building on Easter Sunday. And I got to tell you, as a person who had to sit in my basement and preach to a camera, it was weird. And I don't mean any disrespect when I say it was super lame too. At least that's the way it felt. Uh, because obviously with COVID, we had to shelter in place. And in that moment, as I sat in my basement, as we logged off, and I was feeling very deflated, I realized that I had taken for granted that we'd always get together. It occurred to me that I had taken for granted that we would especially always get together for Easter Sunday until a grand-scale crisis like COVID-19 disrupted gatherings of all kinds took hundreds of thousands of lives here in the U.S. and threatened millions more. And so you'll forgive me if I'm a little excited this morning. Uh, you have to pardon me if I stand here and can't hide my gratitude and awareness that this Easter Sunday, unlike any other Easter Sunday for me, signals a bounce back of sorts for the church. For our local church here, and for the Big C Church Universal. And so it's with last year in mind and the gravity of today's significance in mind that I have the privilege of continuing a teaching series that we started several weeks, weeks ago, a series that we've simply been calling The Great Bounce Back. And we spent the last several weeks talking about the importance of bouncing back when our choices and our own rebellion 
blows up our life. Got to bounce back from that, right? We've also spent time talking about how the choices of others and the carelessness of others and the sinfulness of others disrupt our life, and we have to bounce back from that. We've also spent time talking about how sometimes life just happens, and to do, due to nobody's fault, something lands on you, and you're forced to bounce back. When we look at Scripture over and over, we see that through the power of the Spirit, bounce back is possible. And these bounce backs that we are looking at are not this the signal of human resilience, but it is a highlight to God's unique ability to take what was squandered by us and restore it. God's unique ability to take that which had been damaged by someone else and to restore it. It highlights God's unique ability to take that which was broken and fix it. And ultimately, it showcases God's power and his unique ability to take that which was dead and bring that thing back to life, right? And so today, I want to continue in that vein and discuss and focus on the greatest bounce back of all bounce backs, the resurrection. And on Friday night, Brother Ramon did an excellent job of walking us through a sober look at the cross, the humiliation that Christ experienced there, the torture that he experienced on his way to the cross, and the brutal death that Jesus underwent on the cross, the means by which he would take on the sin of the world so that we could experience not alienation, but meaningful, powerful, eternal life with the Father. And as significant as Christ's death is, that Ramon taught us about on Friday night, his resurrection is far more significant. I'll say that again. As significant and as important and as powerful as the death of Jesus Christ is or was, his resurrection is even more significant. I say that because we need to wrestle with the fact that our Christian faith is either the hope of salvation or it's a scam. It's the means through which salvation comes to the world, or it's the most elaborate scam the world has ever known. That is also to say that Jesus is either a savior or he's a con man. He's either a savior, a con man, or, or, or at best, he's a crazy guy. Not worth following or listening to. Put a different way, there's no middle version of Christian faith that is acceptable. Either it's to be thrown away or it's to be fully embraced. That is also to say that it all hinges on whether or not Jesus Christ got up from the grave like he said and like the prophets foretold. Paul famously says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless and your faith, my faith, is useless as well. He continues, and if our hope in Christ is only for this life, that is to say, if there's no resurrection, we are more to be pitied than anybody in the world. What is Paul saying? Paul says, if Jesus doesn't get up, that's the ball game. Jesus is not raised. Doesn't matter what he said prior to that moment. Doesn't matter what he did prior to that moment. That's the ball, ball game. 
That is also to say that there is a lot riding on this day. It's not just a day to get dressed up, kids get some eggs and candy, cook a good meal and hang out with the family. No, this day signals the essence of who we are. It's the bounce back of all bounce backs. This bounce back is necessary or we should all go home. So with that in mind, I want to bring you this morning a message that I'm simply calling the resurrection, a necessary bounce back. The resurrection, a necessary bounce back. Now, I know that on a day like today, a crowd this size and those watching online, there are folks here who are just looking into faith. This message is for you. You're just kicking the tires of faith. You're just peeking in the window of the church to see if there's something interesting in there. This, this message is for you. Others of you are like me. You're lifelong believers. You spent your whole life going to church. This message is for you because no matter where you are, whether you're new to faith, whether you're far from faith, whether you're close up, what we all need today is an encounter with the resurrected Jesus And so nobody gets to check out this morning. I want to highlight why this resurrection, this particular bounce back was necessary and what it means for us today here in 2021. I'm going to look at a passage of scripture in John chapter 20. Would you meet me there in your Bibles? John chapter 20. Feel free to also uh, follow along on your tablets or your devices. The scriptures will be projected on the screens. And those of you watching at home, it'll be projected for you as well. John chapter 20. While you find that, let me pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for what this day means. Especially in light of not getting to gather last year, Father, we're especially grateful that we can gather in your house, although we're wearing masks, although we're properly socially distant. Lord, we thank you for the gathering, particularly on this day. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would meet us here, Not necessarily with a warm and fuzzies. We'll take those, Father. But arrest us this morning with your truth. Set the table for us this morning that we might gather and eat whatever you put on it. May this book come alive today as we look into the scriptures. Move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your truth and light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. John chapter 20. Um, I'm going to start at verse 1, go through verse 18. Now, as always, I challenge you as I read this text, I want you to pay attention to what, you, uh, what we read. Notice what you notice. Notice what stands out. And for those of you who are in the chat today, go ahead and type it in the chat. And so we're going to pick the story up. Jesus has been tortured. He's been humiliated. He's been crucified. He's been buried. And we pick the story up this morning on Resurrection Sunday morning. Verse 1, early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth uh, that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. 
Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he said, and he saw, excuse me, and believed, for until then they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said, Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Verse 11, Mary was standing outside of the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been laying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angel asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. Love this text. For those of you following along online, would you notice what stood out? Go ahead and share it in the chat if you'd like. Here's a post-resurrection section of John's gospel. And here in this particular section, we find some of Jesus' most faithful and loyal followers, particularly a woman named Mary. And on the one hand, their lack of faith in Jesus as they approached the tomb that morning is striking. And I realize that I say that in hindsight. I say that, you know, as a person who's reading the story thousands of years later, but I'm still struck by their lack of faith on one hand. And on the other hand, I find their lack of faith both encouraging and endearing. I say this often, and I'll say it again, that when I look at Jesus's followers, particularly in scripture, I'm tempted to laugh at them. I'm tempted to shake my head at them. I'm tempted to ridicule them, but I must remind myself and remind you that when I look at them, I'm looking into a mirror, right? They are us. We are them. And as I look at this striking scene, it reminds me of my tendency to have a short memory when it comes to Jesus and his promises. It reminds me of my tendency to be lacking in faith in high-stakes moments. It reminds me of my tendency to misunderstand Jesus or to have selective attentiveness as it relates to the more dicey, more controversial things that Jesus might say and ask of me. I see in them myself. What I also see in this post-resurrection section of the Gospels, it highlights the fact that nobody, but nobody, expected the resurrection. Not Jesus' enemies, not even his closest followers expected him to be risen again. The scriptures tell us that Mary goes to the tomb, finds the stone rolled away, and seeing this, she feels that the only reasonable explanation, despite all that Jesus said, was they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. 
So Mary arrives at the tomb, sees the heavy stone rolled away. It's an incredible, striking scene. She's shocked, and she doesn't think, oh, snap, he got up. Her first thought isn't, oh, boy, he was right. Let's turn up. The king is risen. That was not her first thought. Instead, her thought was, what? On top of all the grief, somebody that come down here and stole the body? Her sadness and grief only makes her ability to process and remember all the things that Jesus said. It only makes it worse. With no time or emotional faculties to process, her mind goes to where her heart goes. Despair and further disbelief. And it's clear in this moment that they've not come expecting an empty tomb and empty grave clothes. Despite the scripture, despite all the teaching and preaching up until this moment. It appears that at best, despite all that Jesus said, they misunderstood him. At best. And at the very worst, They never believed him to begin with. Let that marinate for a second. Based on their reaction, they either really grossly misunderstood Jesus every time he said something about how he'd get up, or they never believed him from the beginning. How does that land on you this morning? And before you shake your head at them again or you shake your finger... It's a mirror. This is us. And because this is us, this disposition of misunderstanding, at best, uh, 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 and a lack of faith and trust, at worst, puts us in an odd disposition to fully engage Jesus in the way that he demands to be engaged as followers of Jesus. So as I unpack this, hopefully in a helpful way this morning, I want to highlight two big things that stand out that make this relevant for us. The first thing that stands out is that like and love don't always equal trust. Like and love, now we're talking about particularly in the context of faith, but this applies in many other areas of relationship, like and love does not always equal trust trust. I say that because how they approach the tomb, Mary in particular, tells us everything we need to know about what they thought of Jesus. They were grief-stricken, her shoulders and head heavy with sorrow, but why? Why sorrow? Why deep grief? Why not anger? My question as I wrestle with this text this week is why isn't Jesus canceled at this point? I mean, this is kind of a big thing to get wrong, right? And whether they misunderstood him or misheard him or whatever, the circumstances that are before them signal that Jesus could not and should not be trusted. 
And yet they're at the tomb relating to Jesus as if he was simply a good friend who has died and not a Messiah or proclaimed Messiah who made some grand promises that he failed to deliver upon in a remarkable way. But they're interacting with Jesus as a friend. They, they liked him. He was a good guy. He was a gentle man. They loved him very much. But the absence of expectation on Resurrection Sunday reveals that they didn't trust him to that same extent. And there's a lesson here for us. Because sadly, many of, of us can resonate with this reality. Uh, many of us don't come toward Jesus with this deep expectation that he is who he says he is, a king reigning fully alive with all the authority to ask what he wants of us and demand what he wants of us and instruct our lives in deep and meaningful ways like a king with full and absolute authority. We don't come to Jesus as if we're interacting with a resurrected, powerful God who is who he says he is. Many of us come much casual, more casual than that. We like him, but I would submit to you today, one of the most dangerous things you can do is just like Jesus. Just be fond of him, the idea of him. And I'd go as far as to say, uh, uh, Love is in the same boat. To have deep affection and affinity, which can just be learned and cultivated over the years, and to stop short of trust. Some of us are just here because this is what we do. Huh? This is what we do. We're cultural Christians. We go to church on Sunday. We go to small group. We give money. That's what my parents did. That's what their parents did. That's what we do. That's how we roll. It's funny how a, a, a year-long pandemic can disrupt a shallow faith and dislodge all the routines and practices, the things that we did. I'm coming down somebody's uh, uh, lane today. I'm, I'm, not just, I'm not picking on folks who are just watching us online. I know we're at capacity here. Many of you couldn't come. But some of us, a year-long pandemic has revealed that as long as a new pattern, a more convenient pattern emerges, we can even forsake our well-worn patterns of faith. It's easier to just watch on online. I mean, let me, let me move on. They liked him. They loved him. They were heavily invested, time, energy, resource, risk even, but they didn't trust him. And we see in these pages how complicated a relationship with Jesus can be when there's no trust. How from a distance, the casual observer might look on and see devotion. They might think they see trust. But when you get up close, they just liked him. You get up close, he was just a dear friend. You ever had a relationship, a complicated relationship with somebody you liked? 
You loved, but you didn't trust him. One of my favorite books is a book called The Speed of Trust. The premise of the book is this. When trust is present in a relationship, cost of doing business goes down. There is a speed and efficiency when trust is present, right? Business relationships, marriages, whatever. When trust is present, we get things done faster, and it costs less money, time, and resources. The flip side of that, when trust is absent, it gets real clunky, doesn't it? You got more questions. You got to check stuff out. Things move slowly, and they cost more money. And I think this really sums up most of our relationship, our clunky, complicated relationship with Jesus. We like him, but we don't trust him. And so it takes longer to move. It takes longer for us to be transformed, and it's just, well, it's just complicated in a way that it doesn't have to be. Well, let me just also say that many of us would prefer to draw near to a lifeless, toothless Jesus. Because a lifeless, toothless Jesus don't have that much to say about your life. And although Jesus has plenty to say, if he doesn't get up from the grave, I could take it or leave it. It's optional. There's no gravity. There's no weight. So I'm reminded of me in high school and in college. You ever had to do a group project with somebody? Anybody? Group projects? And I would always prefer that they would put me with the laziest, most indifferent person in the room because I don't need any ideas. I got it. You don't need to have a say. We'll put your name on this thing, and we can just turn it in. You, you can share my A. And frankly, I think that that's how we approach our relationship with Jesus. Prefer an indifferent, entombed Jesus because he doesn't bog things down with all those suggestions and truth and righteousness. We don't have to really integrate him into how we spend our money and how we manage our sexuality and how we raise our kids and who we date and who we don't date, and what media we consume, what job we take, our political realities and how we view the world. If we, if we, just, if we have an entombed Jesus that we can just cry about and sing some songs about, that doesn't infringe on my life, I'll take that Jesus. And many of us have that kind of Savior. And our relationship with him is something that we're into. Just we go to church, we sing, we pray, we do some charitable stuff, but we don't think too deeply about it. We've come to the tomb hoping to encounter the quintessential good guy and not the one who is resurrected and reigning. And so why this particular bounce back, the resurrection, is essential because it has the potential to reinvigorate our faith, to take off of the throne of our life a limp, slumped over dead Jesus and put a resurrected, reigning king on the throne that has something to say about the world and has something to say about politics and has something to say about the sanctity of life, have something to say about how we spend our money and how we relate to one another. A, a king resurrected and reigning, that's why this matters. 
But this doesn't happen unless we encounter him. Which moves us to the second thing that I see in this story that is necessary as it relates to this bounce back. We need to be brought to a moment of encounter. We all need an encounter, with, not just with Jesus, but with the resurrected Jesus. We all need an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. You say, why do you make that qualification? Because they had all interacted with the pre-resurrected Jesus. They liked him a lot. They loved him dearly. But they didn't trust that Jesus in the way that you trust somebody to say, hey, I'm going to die for a minute, but I'll be back. I'm going to be dead for a few days, but I'm going to be back. If somebody tells you that and they actually come back, do whatever they tell you. <laughs> Go wherever they send you. We need an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Whether you know this or not, you need an encounter. You said, but I'm not a person of faith yet, preacher. You need an encounter. You said, preacher, I've been doing this my whole life. You especially need an encounter. And everybody else in between, you need an encounter, especially after the year we've had. Come on, somebody. We need an encounter to shake us from our complacency, to shake us from the fact that many of us, particularly as it relates to faith, have begun to live minimums. How little do I have to do? We need an encounter. Why? Because they'd heard the sermons. They'd seen the miracles. They'd experienced Jesus' crowds and his celebrity. But this, what Mary has here, is the first real encounter with the resurrected Savior, and it made all the difference. This is what we need, encounter. Somebody say encounter. Somebody else say encounter. We need an encounter. Let me just say that here at SSV, we've always tried to resist the urge to manufacture encounter. In the early days, it's a church plant, meeting in the musty basement. We didn't have much money and resources, and so we didn't have the resources to manufacture, you know, smoke machines and lights, right? And we had to rely on the Holy Spirit's will and desire to show up. We couldn't create it. But as we settled into that, we, we've resisted the urge with more means and more resources to try to create or manufacture encounter. In fact, we have, we have intentionally uh, had a lean towards simplicity, uh, an intentional lean toward dialing things down rather than dialing things up because I'm a good enough musician, I'm a good enough communicator, I can, I can make the room do what I want to make the room do, if you're good enough. I can say, hey, he, he's going to turn it around, and somebody will get up and run around. <laughs> I can hire somebody up here to back me up on the piano, and, and we can tear this place up. But when you leave, you won't know if you've encountered Jesus or just a good preacher or a good organist or a good singer. You can, you can set the atmosphere, but you can't manufacture encounter. And what I like about this 
scene with Mary is she's about to have a moment. And there's nobody playing keys softly in the corner. There's no smoke machines, no lights, no cameras, no media team. Thank you, media team. You guys are killing it. It's just her and Jesus. It's just her and Jesus. Encounter. Standing outside the tomb crying, peeks in, crying. Verse 14 says, she turned to leave. She didn't find what she was looking for. She didn't find the dead Savior. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her, who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. She said, if you've just taken him away, tell me where you put him, and I will go and get him. She, she's, in, she's in the presence of Jesus, and she doesn't know it. She's having a moment. And I love that Jesus asks such great questions. And if I have to imagine the tone that Jesus is using, I don't hear him saying these words to her with a tone of exacerbation or or tone of annoyance or with a stern voice. I I hear him tenderly saying, why are you crying? And you can ask that question a couple of different ways. I can say to my wife, why are you crying? That's the old me. That's like the newlywed me. What are you crying about now? The more refined version of me says, baby, what's wrong? Why are you crying? What's wrong? And I imagine the tenderer version of that. Jesus says, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Now, that's a loaded question. That'll preach all by itself, but I'll leave it alone. Who are you looking for? She can't recognize Jesus. It's the resurrected king right there. She can't recognize him. She's beside herself with grief. She's all in her feelings. She's distracted. But she can't even see Jesus. Now, here's why this is important. Because I talked earlier about trying to manufacture encounter. And there's a curated version of worship an encounter, the really, you know, high-dollar stuff where everybody's in the freshest jeans and the worship team's got matching outfits and the preacher's got the white coat on. There's a manufactured version of that that could communicate that when you come to Jesus with encounter, you've got to be put together. And you've got to know just the right time to lift your hands. You've got to have the right, you know, Gucci top, you know, and the skinny ripped jeans, and you gotta look hip, and they gotta be together. And we can inadvertently communicate that you gotta come right if you go on an encounter. Here, this woman is, she is a mess. She is a mess. And what this says to me, pardon me if I take some liberties, is that you can bring your raggedy self to Jesus. You can be beside yourself with confusion and grief. You can come to Jesus for encounter. You can come looking like and smelling like what you were doing last night, and you can still encounter Jesus. He doesn't demand that we be put together, to have it all together, to know the right things to say or the right prayers, or to have it all figured out with regard to your faith or your sexual orientation 
You don't have, you could bring your raggedy, somebody type that in the chat. Bring your raggedy self to Jesus. Somebody said, I'm not raggedy. Yes, you are. <laughs> you are raggedy. You're cute, though, but you're raggedy. Bring your raggedy self to Jesus. And I've, I've found, though, that the more put together we try to be, the more likely it is that we will miss encounter. This woman is a mess. And when we get to verse 16, we see the very best part of this encounter. My, my favorite part of an encounter, and you don't get this part unless you come to the resurrected Jesus. Unless you discover a king that is resurrected and reigning, you don't get this part. What part is it? Verse 16, he calls her name. He calls her name. Mary, Jesus said. He calls her name. She cries out to him, Rabboni, teacher. That moment, as raggedy as she was and as tore down as she was, in that moment she felt seen and she felt known. And all the confusion begins to subside. All the grief begins to go away because she has an encounter with a God that's alive enough to recognize her, to call her name. There's a few people in my life, few people in my world, that when they say my name, it just hit different, doesn't it? My mom, when, she, when my mom says my name, I don't care how old you get, when your mama say your name, you just like need a hug or something, right? When my mother says my name, I'm just undone. Well, my wife said my name. She rarely says my name, my actual name. Like, it's usually like baby or honey or something, you know, some cutesy like that. But when she says my name, it doesn't matter. We can be a room of a thousand people. When she says my name, it just hits different. Now imagine the Savior of the world that existed before time. It was his voice that spoke to nothing and created everything we see. It, it, when, when that person says your name, what else matters? When you feel seen and known by the God of the universe that was there before time, what else matters? But here's the thing. A dead Jesus doesn't call your name. A dead Jesus isn't checking for you like that. A dead Jesus doesn't come and scoop you out of your mess. A dead Jesus doesn't use all of the resources of heaven to get your attention. Somebody's watching me. You didn't intend to watch me today. You were scrolling. You were scrolling, and, and the Holy Ghost had to stop the scroll so you can hear this sweaty preacher talk to you today. Dead Jesus doesn't do that. He calls her and after he calls her name changes everything in fact the message that she goes and tells the others is I have seen I've seen the Lord I have seen I've seen the Lord how do we put this all together worship team you can come back 
Some of you are like these guys and you really, really like Jesus. And if, if you had to unpack why you like Jesus or how you come to like him or what you like about him, maybe it's the idea of him, maybe it's the cultural aspect, maybe it's the routines that you're in, maybe there's just no better options in the parlor of religions. Maybe you've come to like Jesus. Perhaps you've pressed in deeper and you've come to love him. You've taken comfort in his care. Feel the Spirit's presence. He's pulled you out of some difficult things. He's used the body of believers, the Christian community, to have meaningful, uh, make a meaningful difference in your life. That's cool and everything, but some of you here today would say, Lord, that has not translated into trust. And it's complicated our relationship with Jesus. Because you understand that this doesn't work unless the full weight of your life is leaning on the everlasting arms of Jesus. Some of us have not experienced the fullness of life with the resurrected Jesus because we've just got a little, little side of Jesus. We've only let him come into portions of our life. We liked him, we loved him, but we don't trust him. And you feel arrested by this word today. Because you've only liked him, perhaps even loved him, and you haven't trusted him, you haven't had meaningful encounter with the resurrected Jesus. But I hear the Spirit of the Lord say that that can change today. With encounter. And you may or may not feel warm fuzzies. You may or may not cry. You may or may not be slain in the Spirit. You may not be full of the Holy Ghost and run around the church doing Jesus laps. All of that's okay here, by the way. But encounter the resurrected Jesus. And so my charge to you today is to do business with your, with your life with Jesus. Jesus to do inventory this morning and to see if you like him or do you trust him. Do you love him? Do you trust him? And when is the last time you had meaningful encounter with the resurrected Jesus? I resist the urge to be further prescriptive in how you're supposed to walk this out this week. But my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will grab a hold of this word today and in your own life, in deep and meaningful ways, you will press into real, rich life with the resurrected Jesus. If you're far from Jesus today, you don't know him, don't leave the way you came. If you've been in this thing for a while and you're indifferent, it's stale, it's cold, you find yourself living minimums, especially after a year that we've had, don't leave the way you came. It's a necessary bounce back. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. that you are alive and reigning and you don't desire for us to be satisfied with love and like. Your heart burns and yearns for us to have meaningful encounter with you today so that we know you not just in the fellowship of your suffer, for suffering, but in the power of your resurrection and all the implications thereof. 
So for those who are far from you today, Lord, I pray that you would draw near. For those of us whose love for you have grown cold and shallow, Lord, would you press us back in as we encounter you. Come, Holy Spirit. Do what only you can do. We give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said,